Hello. We were planning to include today's episode in our next season, coming up in the spring. But with the events of today in the U.S. Capitol, I thought it was time to get busy editing this one and putting it out tonight. Welcome to Mindful. Today, my guest is Dr. Haida Hassan, who is with CPN Prev, or Canadian Practitioners Network for the Prevention of Radicalization and Extremist Violence. This conversation was recorded of all days on November 3rd, Election Day in the United States. Today we come full circle. I'm Eric Bowman, the Communications Specialist at the Canadian Psychological Association. My name is Raida Hassan. I'm a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and a professor of clinical psychology at UQAM, UCAM University in Montreal. And I head the Canadian Practitioners Network on Prevention of Radicalization and Extremist Violence. I'm a UNESCO co-chair on Prevention of Radicalization and Extremist Violence as well. So I've been working for a while in the field of violence, more generally, gender-based, inter-community tension, violence associated to what used to be uh, radicalization before the name was used, which was referred to previously more as inter-community tensions or social polarizations. Okay. And actually, that, that is a, a question that I have about it. Uh, the, the word radicalization has been used a lot more of late. It's become the de facto term uh, for people who, you know, become extremists in one way or another, uh, often online. Do you think that term is helping or hurting? Both. <laughs> That's yeah. a very good question. I mean, honestly, the term radicalization is a term that, that existed in, in, in the field, uh, but has since 2005, so since the London attacks, actually, been used uh, in, the, in the national security framework to refer to people who engage in a process that eventually may put them at risk of uh, acting violently based on extremist ideologies or even may lead them to terrorism. The problem with the term is that it identifies radicalization as a problem. And in reality, radicalization as such is not a problem. Being radical means going back to the root of one's ideology or cause, be it political, economic, social, and defending. So, and, and you know, radicalization changes society Sometimes in positive manners, we can think about what uh, feminist radicals have done to right. the cause of women. We can think about sometimes ecological radical radicalization and how it made, that makes us conscious of certain dangerous things that we do to society. So the problem stems uh, when people conflate radicalization with violent radicalization with extremism. Of course, radicalization can lead to extremism and to violent radicalization. So that's one, uh, let's say, both positive and negative. That, that's one risk or misunderstanding that is associated with the word radicalization. The second issue or misunderstanding or problem that is associated to radicalization is the fact that when the term was used, it was mainly used to target and stigmatize uh, minority communities and more specifically Muslim communities within the more global war on terror. 
So the problem with this word is that it has generated a lot of negative consequences for uh, communities that were then systematically targeted as potentially, you know, pre-criminal or dangerous communities. So that's, that's the main problem with the word. And sometimes it does me as head of CPN Prev disservice because when I go to seek uh, communities, they, it produces like a chilling effect on them because they think that this is just another organization that will actually, you know, uh, do surveillance on them. Whereas when, when then I explain that violent radicalization is also about white supremacy, extreme right, misogyny, violent extreme left, it's about hate crimes, uh, then, you know, it kind of clarifies uh, what it's about. But I need to clarify it, which right. means the word is still problematic. And do you think that's because the narrative over the last 15 years or so has directly targeted Muslims in the beginning and now to try to change that uh, into a more generalized uh, view of radicalization has become more difficult, right? Uh, like you said, white supremacy, obviously on the rise, maybe the biggest issue that we have here in North America at the moment uh, in terms of potential violence and groups that are the most dangerous, but it's very hard to convince the public that those are the radicals now. Those are, uh, you know, the extremists that you have to worry about when they've had Muslims in their head for 15 years, right? Absolutely, it is, it is hard and it is hard because of that, because of that historical uh, stigma that has been kind of fabricated around the violent radicalization phenomenon, but also because this stigmatization continues, uh, meaning that media still over-represents violent radicalization based on Islamist ideologies and underrepresents violent radicalization based on extreme right or white supremacy or neo-Nazi ideology. Um, the law on terrorism includes a bunch of Islamist radicalized groups, no extreme right groups until last year when Minister of Public Safety added two extreme right violent groups to be the first recognized terrorist groups in Canada. So the problem is not just historical, this inequality, this imbalance is still continuing today. And part of it, it's because when part of the majority becomes violently radicalized, it's hard for it, the majority, to admit that this is a main problem. So there's like a bias, you know, in the way that we perceive the threat and it took, unfortunately, sad events, attacks with deaths for us to recognize, even for police and security services to recognize that, oh, well, okay, well, this is a threat or this, or this is a worrisome phenomenon that is starting to divide our society more and more. Yeah, and I think that there's something, I think there's something here in Canada too where we want to pretend that we're sort of apart from it, right? That that's kind of an American problem. And we're, you know, we're better off than they are because they have these extremist groups. And I don't think people realize that groups like the Proud Boys, for example, were formed here in Canada by a Canadian. It, 
that's where they originated. Now they're getting shout outs and televised debates in the presidential election, which I am fully cognizant is today. And uh, if we spoke tomorrow, things might be a little different, but uh, you know, uh, we're getting to you just before election day. Uh, so is there a way to reach Canadians as a whole to say, no, this is our problem as well? I think that uh, one way is really to voice the concerns that we have and to use the available platforms to express these con concerns. And I think, however, that uh, you are totally right. Uh, Canada has been, uh, you know, a country that has always had, I mean, Ku Klux Klan and <laughs> historically had uh, extremist groups. The difference, I think, is that until maybe five, six, ten years ago, our groups, although they're numerous and diversified, they're never very, very big in numbers. And their impact, their ability to mobilize and to organize uh, was limited. The problem is for the past ten years, we have been observing a strengthening of these groups, more organization, more connection between them. And also some groups becoming more extreme or more, uh, let's say, calling for hate and violent action to defend their interests. So I think we are starting to, to voice that more. Media is becoming more concerned. Policymakers are becoming more concerned. Um, in schools, uh, I think, you know, in 2017, when the first, let's say, Canadian policy around prevention of violent radicalization was created, 2017 was the highest year in terms of attacks in Canada and a spark in hate crimes. And the fact that hate incidents and hate crimes are increasing, though, though you know, kind of getting a bit steady right now, but they, they have increased since 2015, I think the population is becoming more aware that there is social division in the country, something is changing, it's not the same as it used to be. Right. Uh, I think some situations such as Quebec and Alberta are having major struggles um, and, and the population is becoming more and more aware of that. Now, you say the population is becoming more aware, but it also strikes me that there might be some government uh, uh, the government could be more aware than they are in both Quebec and Alberta, right? I saw the Quebec uh, premier say there is no systemic racism in Quebec. You know, uh, Alberta is not super good on this kind of thing either. Uh, is the population more in tune with where we are today than the government, the provincial governments are? So that's a great question because I think that, well, I said the population is more aware. I don't think it's sufficiently aware. Right. Um, some policymakers are aware, but uh, having experienced work with uh, governmental structures, collaborating, from a perspective of a practitioner, Governments are incredibly low, in slow in terms of uh, 
acting, and they are relatively reactive rather than proactive. So their time, although they may request from practitioner milieus or other milieus rapid action, when it comes to them engaging in a structured, coordinated response, um, there are a lot of obstacles within the structure itself that makes them move ahead for, you know, uh, more quickly. The other major challenge is, of course, votes. So policymakers and governments are highly sensitive to public opinion. And, uh, you know, having Quebec prime ministers say something such as system systemic racism does not exist or systemic discrimination does not exist probably speaks to, the, to their ideological position, but also to what they sense is the public opinion in terms of, or their major voters. And this is a main problem with the government. Um, and government functions with the people that are usually, you know, they're used to work with and their allies. So we need to keep on sending the message that things have to change, that we expect governments to act uh, and to, you know, coordinate in a, in a response. But this means that from our field, practitioners, we need to have our voices heard. And the problem is that often we are so taken in our daily work that actually our voices do not reach the, the upper levels and the levels of the governments. And governments become this way a bit disconnected to our realities. So what I try to do is to encourage practitioners to, to you know, climb up uh, those steps that have them connect to policymakers and to other program designers or funders or just government level so that they sensitize them about the realities and that they advise on what they think are the needs on ground. Right. I know you said, you know, obviously uh, policymakers work with people who share their ideological opinions and their views and they tend to uh, spend most of their time with those people who have the same basic ideas and knowledge, right? I think people in general do that too, right? Uh, what we would refer to in the media as an echo chamber. That, and it strikes me that the echo chamber of the people who are on the right and the people who are on the left are starting to really drift apart. So there's very little crossover anymore. We're actually not getting the same information anymore and we're not getting the same news and we're not receiving it from the same sources. Uh, how much has that played into this increase in white supremacy and in uh, extremism of that nature, the sort of internet echo chambers that we have today. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great and it's very true. I, I was thinking uh, a couple of days ago around how can I, um, you know, how can I say in simple words what I have been observing as happening uh, in making societies more divisive? or divisive, I think we said. Yeah. And um, the, the, the phrase that I found is a bit of an inspiration of a book by Riley, but it says, the, you know, it's the, the image that comes to my mind is 
the best way to say it is the closing of the minds. So actually, what is happening today? And internet has a tremendous role in doing that because of the algorithms, because of the echo chamber effect, because of this highly personalized uh, internet, because of the speed at which information comes, which uh, have cognitive biases uh, interfere with our ability to process the information, to validate or not the information that we are receiving. Because of all these features, what is happening today through internet is this kind of closure. And this closure of the minds, I say, uh, when you have three conditions that occur in society, uh, and these three conditions are fear, and the manipulation and exaggeration of fear, and, and the inducing, continuous inducing of fear in the population, the assassination of nuanced, complex thinkers or thinking or their silencing. In some countries, it's literally the assassination. In other countries, it's the silencing of those voices and the internet, echo chambering and massive, uh, massive platform of misinformation, of violence. It's also, I mean, there are positive sides of the internet, of course, I'm not denying that. Mm -hmm. But when you look at what we have today socially, we have a consistent manipulation of fear by certain politicians and leaders. And playing of fear in times of economic or such as today, pandemic crisis. The major role of a government should be to reassure the population, not to instill fear in its population. Right. We know that when people are fearful, they actually sometimes lose their capacity of having common sense. And they will search for extreme solutions because these solutions reassure, they're like the truth, you know, you cannot question right. those solutions. So we tend to go to those extremes that appear emotionally, you know, kind of comforting, right? So conspiracy theories are a bit about them. They're a bit of trying to make sense of something that is making me anxious and in insecure. And so I just assemble informations in all sorts of fashion and create some form of theory that kind of responds to my anxiety and to my angst, right? Right. And so you have this happening and you have the silencing of all the voices that are calling for complexity, calling for critical thinking. And then you combine this with a tool that has a massive capacity of creating a closed echo chamber and entering in a practically intrusive way the most intimate space, spaces that people can have and where you convey in this internet thoughts, ideas that provoke even more extreme thinking well, you basically produce the social conditions to fracture the peace fabric. Right. And these conditions become even more sensitive when you are in, in delicate situations of, of strong economic crisis. So I'm not being apocalyptic here. <laughs> I'm just saying that we have to be careful. We have to be proactive. 
we have to stop saying, you know, nothing's wrong. There are things that can be addressed and there are policies and gestures that the government can make and then the media can make to help rebring the balance within society. Right. I, I was uh, recently hearing a, a fairly interesting theory about the way the media covers things like conspiracy theories. And they were talking specifically about QAnon. And uh, this is the theory that there's a cabal of mostly Democrats in Washington who kidnap babies and then eat them and a whole pile of other terrible things happen mostly at a pizza place. And, <clears throat> and there's a small tiny group of insiders in Washington fighting against them and Donald Trump is leading them somehow. And the way that the media tends to cover that is that they will find somebody who believes in this conspiracy theory wholeheartedly and they will interview them and they'll put them on TV. And they think that simply by putting that person on TV, that they will appear as ridiculous to the audience as they do to the reporter. But the reporter is coming from a place where they have spent a lot of time fact checking and, you know, gone through this process to become a reporter where that kind of thing does appear to be ridiculous to them. It doesn't necessarily to the average person who's watching that uh, and that rather than doing that taking some time to go back into this theory discover who created it in the first place and why mm -hmm. would be far more helpful uh, from a media standpoint in combating that disinformation does, does that make sense to you absolutely and i think i mean i'm i'm personally very saddened about the way media is behaving <laughs> <laughs> And I personally, I, I know the experiences of different, of colleagues have been different. I have found dealing um, and having media colleagues sit together to think about what can be done quite challenging. And it is because I have noticed a shift in the fundamental mission of the media. So media, be it traditional or so that TV and radio or on the internet, media and journalists are supposed to inform us and they are supposed to help us explain and understand the world. Today, media is like a theater. So basically, the more, and, and because it is now dominated not by this mission, it is dominated by economic and financial interests. And unfortunately, you and I and many people know that what attracts financial interest and listeners and listener quotas is sensationalist, more to the extreme, more theatrical right. uh, portrayals of reality, right? Mm -hmm. And so what media is understanding or not, I don't know if they actually are seriously thinking about the impact of this, of their uh, decisions on populations and of their ethical responsibility towards populations when they do that, they are basically uh, publicizing. <laughs> you know, they're giving publicity and they're giving voices, again, as I said, to those extreme positions instead of, and you know, 
we can say, sure, why not? Fine. You can give voices to those extreme positions, but then it also means that you have to give voices to the much more numerous middle position so that when people are exposed to this, they are exposed to a variety of discourses. Right. And this is not happening. So there are many problems in the way that media portrays reality and the news today that actually kind of, you know, feeds into uh, the phenomenon and uh, um, accelerates some forms of uh, thinking and some form of acts. One of the simple, worrisome, very worrisome uh, effects of media is the copycat effect. We know that when the media presents attacks and when they over and repetitively present it, they significantly increase the copycat effect. So I think we can just think of, about what happened in France, in Vienna, and in Quebec City. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it's exact copycat effect, but I do think that these events are connected in some way. Right. I, I have a background in media. My, I spent almost 20 years in it before I started here at the CPA. And I think, I think it's just accelerated this, this problem that the media has of late, right? I think it started really becoming bad at about the time Fox News began. Because what Fox News did was they created balance in the news or what they would call balance, which is if I have a, if I have somebody on who tells me that climate change isn't real, right? A scientist who says that there is no climate change, human beings aren't causing it in any way, uh, then in order to be balanced, I will have another scientist on who says that it is. And then it becomes presented as a 50-50 proposition. You, the viewer, can make up your mind when, if you really wanted to have balance, you would have the one guy on who says it's not real. And then you would spend the next eight days constantly interviewing all the rest of the scientists who said it was, right? Only then would you truly achieve the balance that exists in the world, right? A 50-50 opinion is not a balance in most cases. And I think it accelerated recently when Donald Trump took up all of the air in the room when it came to the 2016 election. That campaign, they gave him the free publicity nonstop because he said the most outrageous and crazy things. And that was good for ratings. And everybody thought that just showing that would make him seem as ridiculous to the population as he did to them. And that just accelerated all of this, where now there's an idea that having a discourse about all crazy conspiracy theories is the way to shine light on them. When in fact, you're not really doing the work that is required before you do shine that light on that, the QAnon theory or, you know, the militias who are showing up to try to kidnap the governor of Michigan, right? You're not really, you're just presenting, hey, there are these people out there and there's a certain number of people who will say, that's the thing I want to do. And the problem is that, um, you know, sometimes the, the, the people have, or the policy, I'm not, you know, got to always attack policy, politicians. And, but 
you assemble conditions. So you have massive disinformation combined with people who economically struggle, are feeling insecure, scared, combined with massive access to weapons right. or, you know, something that can help you act upon, combined to an internet space that is no longer, so to use psychological terms, that is no longer a space of thinking or playing, but it's a space of acting out. So what the difference is, is that we're not going on the internet. I mean, when, when, we, when I'm talking about those radical groups and hateful speeches, of course, not just to get informed, uh, you know, use tools, um, may, you know, think, bring things further. No, we're just acting out violently by saying insults. It's like acting out on the street by insulting someone. So we're not in a symbolic space anymore. This is what internet was supposed to be and sometimes is a space of creativity and self-expression. But there is a difference between self-expression and literally acting out. And then you get a politician who masters social polarization, the use of social media and internet, and the acting out. Right. And so you get this legitimate dominant figure who basically sends a green light to all individuals who share that kind of, that kind of approach. So can we say that hate crimes and hate incidents have increased because of Trump <laughs> election? I mean, you know, you, I don't think empirically we can, we can say that, but can we find and say the fact that when you have powerful people who are charismatic and who are leaders who propagate extremist positions, that we can say, because empirically we have observed that in extremist groups, one important component of the influence of an extremist group is the existence of a charismatic leader. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of powerful position can become a dangerous position when this power is used, is, is misused in such a way. Now, you said earlier that uh, we really shouldn't be just saying, oh, this is the way it is. We have to really tackle this sort of thing or it will continue to grow and propagate. I'm wondering if you have advice for individuals who may have a friend who's going down this road. Is there a way to steer them gently away from it without directly attacking their beliefs and, and, and what it is that they're thinking? So, uh, absolutely. I think one of the things that we recommend is that when you do, do not have a strong trust relationship and also uh, uh, a tight accessibility to the person, so person in your environment that you see easily, that you interact with often, Confronting is not a good solution. Actually, confronting kind of gives the person the impression that they must be right because you'll be becoming so emotional about the way they think and you're confronting it. And it enters into the paranoid logic, right? And conspiracy theories. I'm not saying that, um, you know, I think we have to be very careful also and admit that conspiracies exist. Right. <laughs> and that... People, it's just a way for them to 
I mean, the, the different theories that we have, be it conspirational or not, are systems of belief that we construct to try to make sense of a series of situations and events that do not seem to make sense to us and uh, in the face of which we may feel powerless, distressed, uh, lacking ability to, to respond uh, to our own distress, but also to a phenomenon that may be strongly affecting us, such as, for example, child abuse, right? Right. And so those conspiracy theories have to be tackled just the same way as we tackle any system of belief. And the way to tackle systems of belief is to see, not, is, is to attack not the system itself, but what the system is used for. What needs does it satisfy? We do the same in the intervention, in the, you know, in, in the, clinical, in the clinical work with individuals and families affected by hate uh, crimes or by violent radicalization. We are not there to tell them uh, to spend hours discussing about ideologies. Of course, there's always room to listen to that ideology because we need to understand the system of belief. Mm-hmm. But what we found out is that when we address the needs that underlie those beliefs, then it becomes less, those beliefs become less important, less salient. The person starts to question them. They seem less attached to those uh, to those beliefs or to those fragile links that they do between different components to combine them in, for example, a conspirational or an extremist theory. And in that sense, sometimes those needs are needs of belongingness. Sometimes they are relational needs. Sometimes they're a set of social economic uh, needs. And In these circumstances, I would say, the first thing I would advise is to engage in a dialogue, not around what the person thinks, but how is the person doing? So it's been a while, how are you? How are things your side? How are you living this COVID situation? How are you experiencing the isolation? Meaning becoming interested by the experience of the person. And then suddenly, when you open that dialogue, you actually become more aware of the function of the conspiracy theory. And then you can gradually help the person in either minimizing the importance and the role that that theory plays in their life, or gradually providing them with alternative perspectives, like a menu in a restaurant, you know. Oh, you know, I've heard about this and I've heard about that. And what do you think about that? So the idea is really to engage in a dialogue. Now, if the person has conspirational thinking, but, you know, it's not uh, jeopardizing their mental health, their interpersonal relations, well, you know, it just happens. People have different thoughts and different ideas and different beliefs. And as long as dialogue is there, then it's fine. But if we want to avoid them becoming more extreme and entrenched, then we really need to be interested about those needs. And often we find that there are deep insecurity, fear, distress issues that are there. And once we address them, 
gradually the person kind of a little bit let goes, or if the person does not let go of their ideas or belief system, that belief system becomes less impactful in their daily lives. Right. Another, another question that I have, and this is something that pops up quite often, is that somebody will post something on social media and it basically says, you know, coronavirus is a hoax, don't wear a mask, don't bother, let's all get together and have a party or what have you. And so many of my friends who post that kind of stuff were conspiracy theorists for a long time. And it was always just, okay, that's fun, right? He doesn't believe the moon landing happened, haha, whatever. Doesn't really affect anybody. This kind of thinking, though, does actually affect the, the population as a whole. It does affect people who, you know, if anybody reads that, believes it, or starts down that path, then they might end up in a place where they are putting their community at risk. Is it worth trying to nip that in the bud, trying to, you know, just add something to it saying, this is inaccurate, Here's, or here are the real facts, so that the next person who reads it may not go down that path? Or is that just something that's going to sit out there for everybody and everyone has to make up their own mind? I, I think you, you're, you're, you're touching upon a very, very sensitive and very challenging question because, you know, we, we live, at least in Canada, within a clear charter on human rights and freedom of expression and the right to dissent, right? Right. Um, and so the challenge is when you strike a balance between people's just right to express ideas they have, of course, not calling for hate. That's not about freedom of speech at all. It's important, very important to clarify the distinction between freedom of speech and clearly hateful, violent, harmful content, that this distinction should be made and people need to be educated about that. People are not quite aware. They will often uh, conflate and confuse freedom of speech with those other forms of you know, very hateful, very violent and impactful and harmful. Uh, right. And I, will, and so, I would also yeah, say, oh, yeah. sorry, I would just also say that I think a lot of the time people conflate the idea of freedom of speech. Uh, I am, the government cannot come and arrest me for saying, something that is clearly false but they believe that freedom of speech means you also can't question me for saying it right that you know, exactly. that i should just be able to leave it out there and not be attacked for it and not you know yeah. so I, I think that's a conflation that happens for a lot of people as well that's that's another excellent conflation if i put something out there then it should not be criticized or questioned you know, or challenged and so the main issue is the fact that with the internet uh, and social media, more specifically, actually, social networks like Facebook and Telegram and, you know, all those uh, social media platforms, the um, availability, the reach of those speeches that may be harmful has increased in a tremendous way that would not have been possible before. 
And so before, while you had some form of um, predictability of the individuals who are most vulnerable, because usually opinions were shared within a group, often in person, uh, on specific sites, with the beginning of the internet. So there was some kind of possibility to see who is being affected and by what. Mm-hmm. Today on the internet, it's, I can say it's a bit like a jungle. You, know? right. you have all sorts of things going on. You have people who have uh, access to these information in a very private space, sometimes to the absolute oblivion and unknowledge of their surroundings. And so the ability to reach vulnerable and fragile individuals has increased. So you are perfectly right when you say, well, we have an issue is that, do we leave all this information? What do we do? The main issue is that we don't know who, but some vulnerable individuals out there may be affected by those discourses of the people who say them, who themselves will maybe never commit an attack, never act violently, but their discourses will impact on vulnerable individuals. And in Canada, this is a bit, and elsewhere in the world, this is a bit what we're observing. So in Canada, the main threat in terms of attacks comes from loan actor profiles or quote-unquote loan actor, right? Because they're never alone. They're influenced by someone, right? Sometimes they're even helped in the planning. So the loan actor is that individual who is vulnerable and fragile and being affected by a series of factors, including internet, because you know, research has now sufficiently documented that exposure to violent extremist content online does influence the attitudes and increase the risk of violently acting out in individuals who are already at risk that is connected with other life uh, crises and other risk factors in, in their real life. So when these results show us this, it means that the impact of what certain people say may unfortunately hit the wrong person or the right person at the right moment, unfortunately, or the wrong person at the wrong moment, meaning that vulnerable individuals, that sometimes the the surrounding that is very close to the individual can see changes and alert and seek help. And sometimes they can't, either because that person is very isolated or because it's really happening in a very intimate space. And this is what gives us this very scary portrait of the lone attacker that's like kind of where we feel that we didn't have the capacity to see it coming, right? Right. So can we censor? Well, we can censor illegal stuff. We can't censor harmful but legal discourses. And so the best route is prevention, is educating people, making them conscious of their social responsibility as citizens, telling them that why are you behaving on the internet in ways that you may not behave in real life? 
And even if you behave that way in real life, well, let's talk about it. Right. And so we have to seriously engage and equip the education system and the media, for example, all those systems that have, uh, that have great outreach, that have very strong and wide outreach. Why education system? Because they reach most children and teenagers and even adults in this country. Mm-hmm. Why media and internet? Because they reach. So if we equip these systems in all sorts of prevention initiatives, then we prepare our generations to come to be able to tackle those issues and themselves kind of understand as a citizen being, you know, being in solidarity with the other citizens living in this country and wanting peace and wanting to preserve it. Well, what is the impact of my behavior on the internet? And this is what we call, you know, kind of internet literacy understanding the impact of your behaviors on the internet and how they connect to the offline world. So you are in the education space and obviously uh, that's part of what you do. Can you tell me, can you just tell me a little bit about CPN Prev? What is it you guys do and uh, you know, how do you go about it? Sure. So CPN Prev has four main uh, missions, let's say. The first mission is to um, generate evidence and inform. It's it's a network for practitioners by practitioners. It was founded because we felt that practitioners were the individuals or are the individuals who are working hard on a daily basis. However, with little means, their voice is not heard so much and in silos. So the idea was really, that's why it's a network. It was really to connect practitioners across the country together. First mission, so that we can connect, break the silos. Second, share our expertise, our knowledge, our know-how, our challenges, and therefore improve our capacities and capacities to collaborate together. Because in a complex, dynamic, evolving field that has little empirical, strong empirical evidence such as violent radicalization, the best practice is the sharing of expertise. This is how our capacities improve. When we actually network and share and discuss and discuss about situations and what we did about those situations and practice tools test instruments, etc. So that's the main heart core of CPN. But then what we do also is in relation to that, we generate a number of knowledge mobilization tools. We have a web page on those tools and these tools are there for practitioners to use and to test as they see fit. We also create events to help connect individuals We have eight training modules that are constantly being updated so that we can train uh, practitioners and anybody interested in the field in understanding the phenomenon, knowing how to prevent, how to evaluate, how to intervene. And we also have this kind of research to practice mission. And the research to practice mission is basically a mission of systematic reviewing and developing 
consensus-based evidence guidelines. So the idea, because there's a lot of misinformation from research to practice, is to do systematic reviews, use a highly robust methodology to review the evidence that is out there critically by saying, this is the type of evidence you can trust and this is the type of evidence you cannot trust because the methodologies are too weak, too problematic, etc. Conflicts of interest, whatever reasons, to you know, rate the evidence as not very reliable. And then we translate this to practitioners. Okay, practitioner on ground, this is what evidence means. This is how we were able to say that although evidence is weak, some evidence showed that there is a link between exposure online and offline behaviors. And then we translate this into all sorts of, uh, um, all sorts of uh, ways, videos, uh, you know, um, uh, tip sheets, etc., to, to make them available to practitioners and reports, of course. And then connected to that, we have a Canadian and an international consensus guidelines committee of experts who will together, based on their expertise and exposed to evidence, develop for the practitioners in Canada promising guidelines, so recommendations of, okay, what are things that you should do as a practitioner in order to better evaluate or better interview? So in a nutshell, <laughs> we have a Canada-wide mapping, so individuals who feel they need support can either click on the map and look for services in their area. However, because not all services are rendered public, if individuals feel they need support, we have, you know, when they go on the map, they can write us and then we can connect them as well with practitioners in their area who can provide them support. So it's really making that big country a bit smaller <laughs> right. in terms of connecting strengthening capacities, sustaining those capacities on ground as well. And so the practitioners who, who join, who sign up, who become part of this large network, are they generally people who are currently dealing with somebody that they're worried about uh, going down the path of violent radicalization? Or are they somebody who wants to help with that, learn about it, and then reach out to the people who are in that situation? So both. So we, we consider practitioner any individual who works on ground with vulnerable people, uh, be it police <laughs> to psychologists, psychiatrists, okay? Um, however, uh, CPN, uh, when it means by practitioners, it, it does not include, it's, it's, it's not security oriented, so it will be more psychosocial, community, uh, organizations, practitioners, right? And so if you are an, a practitioner who has never uh, been in touch with a person who's violently radicalized, for example, but you are interested, then you can join the network because the network is there to support you in understanding and uh, participating in ways that you wish about the phenomenon. But then there is a private platform space within CPN for what we call tertiary practitioners in the prevention and the public health model. And tertiary level practitioners are practitioners who have, who daily, who work with individuals who are violently radicalized. The reason why 
this space is a protected space. It's a community of practice is because of, of course, protection of privacy, confidentiality, protection of the rights of those individuals. And so it's simply to say that CPN has a space for all um, types of practitioners and all levels of prevention from primary, that is not with people at risk, to secondary, people at risk, to tertiary, people who are violently radicalized. Do you keep stats? I, I guess, how do you see the trends going? I, of the people who are violently radicalized or in danger of becoming so, uh, how many are affiliated with white supremacist groups versus Muslim groups versus um, misogynist uh, anti-woman groups? Uh, do you have any kind of data like that? Uh, has there been a trend in one direction over the last several years? So we're very, we, the different teams, so the different practitioners and the teams that they belong to have their data. And this data can be pooled. Uh, currently, it's not fully pooled because it's quite a new area, right? So most teams actually that work in the domain have not been there for more than two years. So this is very new and the teams are pooling. What I can say, however, is that Although in the beginning, uh, when practitioners on ground started working, they thought that they would be encountering mostly maybe Islamist or you know, religiously inspired radicalization, it is really much more the big umbrella of what we call extreme right wing, because to me, uh, Islamist, religious, whatever, radical, violent radicalization is actually right wing. Right. to the fundamentals the of, fundamentals. of the way of thinking. For sure. Uh, you know, it's good to categorize them because it helps separate ideologies. But most of them uh, today, I can say that, uh, of course, usually more, well, more men than women. <laughs> right. And, um, but not, you know, it's getting closer, uh, but more fall into the more general uh, right violent extremist right wing, um, but also what we may call single cause, such as, for example, highly misogynist groups. We right. must, however, be careful because what we also see is the shifting from one ideology to the other. So again, as I say, ideology is not necessarily the main uh, problem. The problem is often something that's extreme, the crisis, the violence, because some individuals shift from extreme left sometimes to extreme right in their trajectory. And so this makes it a bit hard to have fixed, clear stats, uh, but the stats are definitely going more into the direction of, of uh, extreme right-wing, violent right-wing groups. And I... I definitely seen uh, you know anecdotal study or anecdotal uh, examples of people who have been a part of a white supremacy group in the US or in Canada and then have become disillusioned with that group and have joined ISIS right and you kind of think okay the two things ought to be polar opposites but they're not really that opposite they're really uh, two very similar ideologies 
uh, that speak to somebody who is in a vulnerable position to become radicalized, right? They are, they are very similar in terms of their fundamental uh, structuring, which is dividing society, dividing people into groups that have discrete, discrete distinctive characteristics, deciding who's part of the in-group, who's part of the out-group, and then justifying the uh, literally sometimes complete uh, uh, disappearance or killing or whatever of the out-groups, and then putting those groups in competition with one another. This is what right-wing, <laughs> This characterizes the extreme right wing, um, you know, fundamental thinking in this area. And so both the Islamist groups and the other right wing groups have the same structure. It's just simply the, the ideology. So who they consider being <laughs> the in-group right. and out-group, that kind of differs. And the project, of course, the socio-political economic project. So is there one thing that, I, that you would point to as being the most dangerous thing that we face from here going forward in terms of violent extremism? Is it economic anxiety? Is it uh, confinement and being stuck on the internet for 12 hours a day? Uh, is, what are the things that are the most worrisome for people who might end up going down this path? It's, it's very difficult to say because every trajectory is so unique in a way. Mm -hmm. I would say, um, you know, from a kind of psychological stance, the most worrisome is when you find in somebody a combination of rage and despair. Right. And this is worrisome. Uh, in terms of practicality of risk assessment, it is when you find the combination of three components. The intention to act violently, so if I'm focusing only on behaviors, right, mm -hmm. which has a good predictive capacity when you focus on behaviors. Uh, the intention to act violently, the capacity, and the opportunity. So when you have any of these three components, it means there is imminent danger. If you have Two, one, it means that you should do something about it. <laughs> right, yeah. And so, but then it also means that we need to know who those individuals uh, are. And now in terms of more generally, socially, well, I think we should think toward the unclosure of the minds. And this is something that yeah. governments have an active role to play. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I appreciate it so much. Great, thank you. Thank you to Dr. Hassan, and check out the good work CPN Prev or CPN PREV is doing to combat violent radicalization here in Canada, the Canadian Practitioners Network for the Prevention of Radicalization and Extremist Violence. That does it for today's special episode. Thank you for listening. Stay safe.